0: Readings from John chapter 11, verses 17 to 27. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world.
1: Let's pray together. Father, your uh, word says uh, through the prophet uh, Jeremiah that your word itself is like a fire. It's like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. Father, we confess that often our hearts are very hard. Uh, we become entrenched in our own ways and our own thinking and our own selfishness, Father. And sometimes we just need your word to come in and break uh, the rock of our hearts into pieces. So, Father, I pray that as we encounter your word this morning, that you would speak very clearly to our hearts through all the noise and all the distraction that we might be able to see you and your greatness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm willing to bet uh, that at some point uh, this week, you uh, in your life probably reached some sort of tipping point. A tipping point is, is when you feel something about something in your life. You feel a certain way about a situation but then circumstances begin to change and you start to begin feeling differently and all of a sudden things change and you feel very differently than you did before. There was probably a large part of us, every one of us here, that was excited about having snow last weekend. There's something about when the weathermen start talking about snow, we start getting really excited about it, but we, all, we also probably at some point this week had our tipping point. It was the day where we looked at each other and said, I can't wait for our kids to go back to school. Or the day we looked at each other and said, is there a plow that is ever going to come down to my street? Or the point where we said, am I ever going to see grass again? We still are there. Maybe tipping point is not the right term for it. Maybe breaking point is the better term for it as how we felt this week. Well, for the past several weeks, we've been uh, looking at the claims of Jesus Christ. We're not looking at the things that other people said about him or what historians or theologians have said throughout history. We're looking at what Jesus said about himself. And it's interesting to see the responses. Some people believed him immediately. Others had a hard time coming around. Others picked up rocks to stone him at certain points. But most people were caught somewhere in the middle. They were caught somewhere in the mystery and confusion of who Jesus was. But this morning's passage tells us about a tipping point when it comes to the life of Jesus. Because it was after this story, it was after this narrative that Jesus' enemies made a very important decision. They decided that Jesus must go. The passage at the very end tells us that as soon as they saw what Jesus did in this little town of Bethany, they began to conspire about how they would end him. And those plans, of course, we know from the gospel story were to some degree successful. As we look at this story this morning, this very important story, I want to look at four chapters or really four elements of this story that are all equally important. I want to look at the tragedy, I want to look at the miracle, at a declaration, and finally a confession. The first thing I want to look at is, is how the passage opens, and it opens with a great tragedy or a great sadness. I don't know if you saw uh, on the news this morning, but there was this awful story in the news this week uh, about a little girl in Carroll County who was uh, riding on a sled. I think it was at her house, just riding down the hill at her house, and her sled took her into traffic. She was hit by a car, and she was killed instantly was a tragic story on the news. I couldn't help but, but think about it this week as I took my own kids who are about the same age and, uh, and we were sledding ourselves on, on hills around our home. And I looked at that story and I thought, what an absolute tragedy for that family. But in reality, our story this morning begins with an equally tragic story, a very deeply emotional or a deeply sad story. The gospel tells us that, that Jesus was uniquely close to, to one particular family. It was a family with one brother and two sisters, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. We don't know why Jesus got particularly close to them, but what we do know is that he spent a considerable amount of time with them, and because of that, he became uniquely close to them and their family. And when the story opens, we learn that Lazarus, who is the brother to Mary and Martha, has taken ill. We don't know what the illness is, but we know that it was life-threatening. His life was in great danger. So Mary and Martha do what they knew to do, and that is they sent for Jesus because they believed deeply that somehow Jesus would be able to help. But mysteriously, Jesus delays in going to their help and going to see his friend Lazarus. He delays so much that once he finally arrives in Bethany, Lazarus has already been dead for several days. You see, in the ancient Jewish culture, mourning was an incredibly elaborate affair, more so than, than our culture today. When someone would die, the entire town would become involved in mourning for the deceased. People would line up for days in order to uh, offer their condolences to the family that lost someone. They would even hire uh, professional mourners who who would be hired to come and weep and wail loudly for the deceased. It must have been an incredible job to be a professional mourner in the ancient world. But that's exactly what they had. And the mourning process was, was over a month long. It was about a month and a half long. But the climax of the mourning process was on the fourth day. And we'll see why that is. But the climax, the, the, the fever pitch of the morning happened on the fourth day. And that was the day that Jesus arrived in Bethany. Says in verse 33, when Jesus saw her, when he saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. And then later in the narrative, it says again, then Jesus deeply moved again. Came to the tomb. You see, what John is doing here is he is repeating for effect just how much Jesus was emotionally moved and emotionally broken by this situation. He was broken by the loss of his friend. He was saddened by the pain that Mary and Martha was feeling. He was caught up in the entire scene of mourning when he arrived in this town. You see, as a man in Jesus's humanness, he felt the tragedy of pain and death just like you and I do. He demonstrates in this passage how important grief and mourning really is for not just him, but for you and I as well. We see in this passage God himself grieving and mourning, even though he knew exactly what was going to happen just moments later in the story. We also have to think of Jesus in his, in his divinity as well. Because in his divinity, he must have felt angry or frustrated over the pain and destruction that is caused by the presence of sin in this world. Jesus must have been full of the complexity of emotion in a way that we couldn't possibly understand ourselves. But what's important for us to know is that Jesus knows what it feels like to experience tragedy And to experience death. But despite this tragic circumstance, the tragedy was followed. We read about it in verse 38. It was followed by a miracle. I don't know how many of you uh, have seen uh, this scene in the the old movie. It's an old movie now called The Princess Bride. Uh, If you haven't gone and seen that movie, you got to go see it. It's a wonderful movie. It was probably made in the the mid-90s or something like that. And I've used this illustration before. But, uh, but it's a wonderful movie. And, but what's so interesting about it is as soon as you get to the middle of the movie, the hero, I'm, not, I'm letting the cat out of the bag here, the hero suddenly dies right in the middle of the movie. And everybody looks around saying, what's going to happen now? Our hero has died in this movie. And all of his friends look around and wonder, what are we going to do now that our hero has died? So they did the thing that came to their mind. They looked for a miracle. So they take the hero to a man called Miracle Max. He's played by Billy Crystal in the movie. It's a very short part, but it's a wonderful part. And they bring the hero in. They put him on Miracle Max's table. And he, and he looks at the body and he listens to it. And he looks up and he says, I've got great news for you. Your hero is only mostly dead. He's not all dead. And take comfort because if he's only mostly dead. That means that he is slightly alive. Now we all look at that story and we laugh about it, but it's actually not all that different than what the Jews believed concerning death in Jesus's day. You see, the Jews believed that for several days after a person would die, the spirit of that person would float just above the body, seeking to return into the body. And this is why the mourning actually didn't reach its climax till the the fourth day, because the Jews believed that at the fourth day, the spirit would finally give up and the person would be all dead or dead dead. And it is no accident that Jesus chooses to raise Lazarus from the dead on the fourth day. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He stands before the tomb. He calls for Lazarus and Lazarus comes out and he turns this incredible scene of mourning all around him into a scene of joy and dancing and celebration. Friends, I have to be honest, this is where many people cry uncle when it comes to Jesus Christ. They can believe that Jesus was a great teacher. They can believe that he was a moral example or that he was a good man. But to believe in the miraculous, to believe that Jesus had power over life and death, well, that's just a little bit too much for some to really swallow. But if you look at the scriptures, you'll see that Jesus consistently performed miracles. He he performed extraordinary or outside of the ordinary acts almost all the time. And he did it to authenticate his message. It was as if he was saying, I'm not just going to say that I'm God, but I'm going to demonstrate to you that I am God. I'm going to demonstrate to you the power of God in my life. And this is very hard for some people to accept. For people who often are, are dominated by their reason, this is very hard. If, if science doesn't support it, if I can't make sense of it in my mind, then I choose not to believe in it. It must just be some sort of myth that has been cooked up by Jesus' followers. They'll believe in Jesus' teaching, but not his miracles. They simply can't accept that. And in doing so, what they do is they confine God to the limits of their own rationality. But if Jesus is who he said he was, if he was God, then he was the only one who could step outside of the normal and ordinary and do something miraculous because the scriptures tell us that God is not bound by the normal and ordinary ways of life just like you and I are. I think we also have a hard time embracing extraordinary miracles because I think often in our culture we grow numb to the ordinary miracles that happen around us every single day. The birth of a child is an incredible miracle. The couple that stays together for a lifetime is itself a miracle. The fact that our bodies fight off disease, that they can recover from injury uh, is an everyday miracle. I don't know how many of you drive the beltway, but everybody talks about how many accidents there are on the beltway. I think it's an absolute miracle that there aren't more accidents on the beltway every single day. You see, we become numb to all these things. We become complacent to the ordinary miracles so that when something extraordinary happens, we have a really hard time believing in it. But the gospels are littered with these sorts of stories. Jesus himself was a miracle worker. Every time he performed a miracle, it was a tangible way for him to demonstrate the very thing that he communicated. He told people who he was and he showed them that he was God. But the story continues. Because in this story, we see another element. We see the element of declaration, or we see a declaration that comes before the miracle. And this is really the third thing that we see. Look in verse 25. The passage tells us that before Jesus arrives in Bethany, Martha, one of the sisters, runs out to meet Jesus, he runs out to intercept Jesus. And when she meets him, she is full of all sorts of confusion over who Jesus is and why he would let this happen. She was a bundle of of both belief and unbelief all at the same time. And all this is in conjunction with a life that is full of sadness and mourning and exhaustion. And it's in this moment that Jesus says these words to her. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You see, Jesus reminds Martha that life and death are not categories that bind him like they do the rest of humanity, like they do you and I. He tells her that even though death is the end of our physical lives, it doesn't need to be the end of our existence. He tells her that in him, life that is eternal is offered to us. And to make his point even stronger, he says that all who believe in him will never experience death. See, what Jesus is saying here is that death, in him, death no longer becomes the end. Instead, it becomes a gateway. It becomes a gateway into a much fuller and in some sense, a much realer existence, a much realer life. One commentator, William Barclay, said, In Christ, death doesn't become a sunset. Instead, it becomes a sunrise. Another commentator said this, those who believe are given a real new identity in the present, a life which now will never die. In other words, the believer now possesses already a divinely given immortal life which will survive death and be re-embodied in the final resurrection. Friends, I believe that death is one of the harshest realities that we have to experience in this world. All of us have felt the pain of losing a loved one. We've all felt the painful loss of of watching the news and seeing people's lives cut short. We've all mourned by watching the news of another person who's been gunned down on the streets of Baltimore through uh, violence that so plagues our city. And we also try really, really hard not to think about the fact that one day our lives will meet death just like everyone else. But just think about the freedom that comes from knowing that in Christ, our lives no longer have to have a period. Instead, they can have one of those dot, dot, dots. It's simply a gateway into a new living reality and one that is freed from all sin and freed from all sadness. All this is made possible by Jesus himself who would rise from the dead because he is the resurrection and the life. I think this declaration means something personal for each one of us as we read it but I certainly think that it meant something incredibly personal for Martha in this story. I could be wrong. I should have done the research this week. I could be wrong, but I think this is the only I am statement that Jesus mentions in the Gospels, and there are seven of them. It's the only I am statement that is directed to just one person. All the other statements are to crowds or to followers who have gathered around Jesus and are listening to him. But this declaration was directed at Martha and Martha alone. And in it, we get to see her response. We get to see the last element of the story or the last chapter. We get to see her confession. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he looks at her and he says, Do you believe this? Verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is one of the most earliest, most powerful, and most complete confessions of faith in all of the scriptures. And it came from a woman Someone who was deemed to be second class in the ancient society, yet we see her as someone who understands Jesus uniquely better than anyone else. And what is so miraculous about Martha's confession is the timing of it all. She confesses this before Jesus even performs the miracle. In some ways, you and I have to be like Martha in that right as well. We don't get to see Jesus in the flesh as, as first century Christians did. We don't get to witness firsthand the miracles of Jesus, but you and I are still called to believe just the same. I can only imagine this conversation as Jesus peered into Martha's tear-stained And exhausted eyes and said to her, do you believe this? Because the truth is, Jesus looks into our lives just the same and asks, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am God made flesh? Do you believe that before Abraham was, I am? Do you believe I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep? Do you believe that I am the way, the truth, and the life? I am the door, the only way to be made right before God. Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Leon Morris said this, he said, Jesus's words about faith and life are not a philosophical dictum to be critically argued. They are a saving truth to be received and acted on. So do you believe along with Mary that he is the Christ, the son of God who has come into this world? And if you do, then life eternal is yours. The other day I was, I was watching a show with, uh, with my youngest son, and we like to watch these kind of fantasy shows from time to time, and this was one of those fictional fantasy shows that we watch. And uh, in, in this episode, uh, a character came back to life. It was a character who had died in a, in a previous episode and he came back to life in this newer episode and the reason he came back to life was because other people remembered him. That it was the simple memory of this character that ended up bringing this character back into life. And my son watched it. He was really confused. He's like, how is this person back into life? So I, I explained to him, well, it's not real, but it, it means that if, if the characters remembered him, then he would come back into his life. And he looked at me and he, I could see the wheels were turning in his head. And I knew exactly uh, who he was thinking about. He was thinking about his great-grandmother. And he said, Daddy, if I just remember Nanny, does that mean she's going to come back to life? And I thought, as I heard him say that, I thought that there is something deep inside of us, even as little children. There is something that is deep inside of us that wants to know that our lives do not end in death. We all yearn to know that there is something fuller and greater that awaits us on the other side of this life. And you and I can experience that reality when we believe Christ and who he said he was, the resurrection and the life. Uh, Edward, the confessor, who was a, 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 an English king and was a believer in Jesus Christ and uh, later became a saint in the church, he said these words, and I'll close with these words. Weep not, I shall not die. And as I leave the land of the dying, I trust to see the blessings of the Lord in the land of the living. Let's pray.